regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. a chance to come to my show and, and listen to Datacast again and today I'm uh, got a chance to speak with uh, Colin Farrelly. Uh, she is a data scientist whose experience spans biotech, healthcare, pharma, marketing, finance, operation, edtech, manufacturing and disaster logistics. Um, her research focused mostly on the intersection of topology geometry, machine learning, statistics and quantum computing. Uh, she is passionate about poetry, surfing, uh, gatos football, and uh, social economics. Uh, so, uh, Colin, I'm glad to have you on the show. Glad to be on the show. Awesome. So, uh, to start off, uh, can you give a brief overview um, of your professional background and what paths that led you um, into data science? Sure. Um, my background's a little different than a typical data scientist. When I was an undergrad, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. There were just so many interesting classes. And I kind of settled on medicine and entered an MD-PhD program. Um, for those folks who don't know, that's where you get both your MD and your PhD in the same program. So I was about two years into that program when my school started a machine learning program. And I ended up going to one of the lectures that was being given on the use of random forests and genome-wide association studies. And I just fell in love with machine learning. I ended up switching into the new graduate program that was being started about two weeks later. And was definitely one of the best choices I've made. Um, so my background is kind of a hodgepodge of the social sciences, uh, the medical sciences, and math slash machine learning. I see. And, and uh, reflecting on your career thus far, you know, how do you think that sort of, uh, you know, that, that makes a background, both from the medicine side and the, you know, uh, social science side, contribute to your uh, success as a data scientist working in uh, different domains? Well, first thing that I think helped a lot was when I was looking for my first job in data science. Um, having the medical background was really great for my first position, which was working within the healthcare field, um, being able to understand both the technical aspects and the things that doctors and nurses would care about was really, really helpful in kind of being able to bridge the gap. Um, data scientists kind of go between a lot of different people or kind of the bridges throughout an organization. So we'll work with tech people, we'll work with business folks, domain folks, and it's definitely been an asset to be able to connect with um, just different sorts of people. I've been in healthcare and biotech a bit in the past and do some consulting in that field and just kind of understanding where doctors are coming from and kind of the healthcare system in general is really helpful in understanding kind of what's behind the data and what needs to be done for the results to be useful. And I think that's really been an asset. What you uh, really want is sort of the domain knowledge uh, of the field yeah. in order to make, make, make the best use of the data to, to support that, right? Definitely. Domain knowledge is really important and I don't think that's highlighted enough um, within data science education and some of the career boards that are out there. I see. Um, so you talk a little bit about consulting. So I saw that you have written a company called Statistic Laser, LLC for consulting work on the side. 
Um, and so given your, your concerning experience, um, how do you think data science um, varies by sector? There's definitely a lot of variation in um, kind of the maturity of data science in different fields. Um, so it's very new to healthcare, and you'll find folks who know stuff like random forests and logistic regression and stuff like that who might not be as familiar with some of the other tools of data science. And you'll find other industries that are a little bit more mature who understand like a lot of the machine learning type things and how to set up studies. And then there are industries where things are really just starting out. Um, companies vary as well. So you'll have some companies that know quite a lot about data science, including things like topological data analysis, and really are ready to kind of jump into everything. Um, and then there are others that are kind of just starting on the journey. And with those clients, getting them to kind of understand things is a process and kind of understand how they can leverage data, how they can capture data, um, what actually exists out there in machine learning mm -hmm. and statistics. It's, it's really interesting to see how much things vary both across industries and across companies. You mentioned, uh, you know, before our chat that uh, Statisticism is currently working on um, a medical technology project and, uh, you know, plan planning to publish the fighting soon. So, um, you know, maybe can you uh, review some information about it? Yeah, um, so I connected with a couple of doctors who are interested in kind of how technology can be leveraged to help patients. And we've been looking at some data to kind of see, you know, who uses technology and um, kind of who's doing what with technology with respect to medicine. And it's been really interesting to see some of those results. It's fairly new in the medical field, um, this use of technology and this use of algorithms. And it's really great to see so many people starting to embrace medical informatics and um, the role that technology can play in helping people stay healthier. And uh, besides from statisticism, you're also the co-founder and uh, chief mathematician of Quantopo, which is um, a quantum machine learning company uh, that focused on leveraging the geometry of quantum mechanics to improve upon statistical modeling tools. You know, for, for folks who are not familiar with maybe, um, you know, uh, quantum mechanics, so can you share you know, several applications of um, quantum machine learning in the real world? Yeah, it's a really new field, and it's really exciting to be in that field. Um, the math of quantum mechanics um, leverages a lot of linear algebra and calculus, which makes a, it pretty well adapted for machine learning, which is based on some of this math. Um, so at Quantopo, we've ended up looking at a few different types of algorithms. Um, so some of the supervised learning, like you talked about, uh, we were able to figure out that one of the quantum gate operators actually functions very similarly to a link function in regression. Mm -hmm. So you have your linear regression where things are a normal distribution for your outcome and then these things that are linearly related to that outcome. But in the real world, you rarely have normal distributions of outcomes. And so you use a link function to kind of smooth things out and adapt regression for different types of outcomes. And figuring out that this gate could be used um, to generalize this link function was really cool. Mm -hmm. And it really got me interested in quantum machine learning and some of these algorithms. There's also a lot of algorithms coming out these days in quantum computing related to graph theory. Um, so looking at social networks, looking at communication networks, um, even looking at gene networks, all of these are based on graphs. So you have individuals connected in some way. And 
one of the things that's great with qubits is their natural their natural networking and adaptability for graph problems and it's been really interesting to see um, kind of how it works on toy problems right now quantum computers really aren't at a point where they can handle things like all of Facebook or even just one person's entire social network. But it's really interesting to see how these algorithms are working on toy problems. And a lot of the tools in network science are actually being translated into quantum algorithms. And with the quantum computers that actually exist today, we're able to run these algorithms on quantum computers and see how they perform. It's really interesting to see just where this field is going. There's so much being discovered every day. And it's really cool to be part of a new field, mm-hmm. I got to say. Um, for listeners out there who want to know more about this, you can look up my papers. Um, Peter Wittick and Seth Lloyd are pretty active in this space, and their papers are definitely worth reading. I, I see. So, so based on what you said, most of the you know, uh, novelty industry is still coming from academic labs, right? So is there any industry slash, you know, big corporation that also you think? IBM and Google Mm -hmm. um, are doing a lot of corporate research in quantum computing. And then there are a lot of hardware companies out there, uh, smaller companies like Rigetti and D-Wave and Xanadu that are kind of partnering to look into quantum machine learning. It, it's being done in research. A lot of it is more proof of concept type things than actual industrial applications these days, though. And so um, you mentioned that right now Quantopo has a new project um, leveraging yep. quantum and quantum-inspired algorithms for nuclear reactor optimization, which is a pretty interesting use case. So can you um, elaborate on that? Yeah. Um, so we're kind of in the early stages of a project with a graduate student and a few folks working in nuclear engineering um, in the field of nuclear engineering. There's a lot that is done by simulation um, with respect to how to design reactors, how to um, optimize the fuel rods, um, and other processes that you need to, to run a nuclear plant. And it's been really interesting to look at some of the problems that exist in that field and how quantum algorithms and other machine learning algorithms might be able to help with a few of the key problems in that field. What are some of the key problems in that field? Well, like any business, um, there are expenses, and if you're able to kind of minimize those expenses without hurting the business or hurting everyone around the business, in the case of nuclear reactors, um, making sure that things are safe and efficient is a high priority. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are some designs that you can do that would really maximize efficiency, but they're not safe. And then there are ones that are really, really safe, but cost a lot more money than would be optimal. And so we're kind of at the early stages of defining some of these problems and um, exploring different algorithms as potential solutions. It's really interesting to see how complex um, some of these processes are. It's a lot like medicine, actually. The human body just has all of these different processes that interact and need to be taken into consideration when you're looking at solutions or how entire systems work. And it's kind of the same in nuclear engineering. You have a lot of moving parts that are interacting in different ways that you need to consider when you're designing an algorithm or matching an algorithm to the problem. Really interesting to look at these complex problems. And so uh, what, what could be your advice, you know, for, let's say, a data scientist who 
you know, maybe who want to start a business and get into consulting, what could be maybe not domain specific knowledge, but maybe like just in general guidelines in terms of, you know, maybe fighting clients or fighting partnerships, uh, things of that nature? So it's definitely best to do this on the side to start with. Um, most of the major tech companies out there, like Google, um, their co-founders actually started um, doing it on the side and made the switch once things had become pretty successful. And I would definitely say that that's a good way to do it. Um, it's a good source of income outside of work, and it's a good, um, I guess, way to get extra challenges or learn new things in the field if you're able to find par partners in areas that you're not as familiar with or with algorithms that you aren't working with so much on a daily basis. Definitely um, social media is a help. Um, if you're answering questions in a domain, you'll have people reaching out to you and wondering if the stuff that you're doing might be a solution to something in their field. So I would definitely say things like LinkedIn, Quora, other sites that have both the networking and the knowledge component are really good places to start. So start uh, small on the side and try to leverage your social network to, you know, broadcast your expertise so people can have a chance to uh, to reach out to you, right? Um, definitely. Um, so, so so let's talk a little bit about um, topological data analysis, which is a topic that um, you're an expert in. Um, so for the people who are not familiar with it, you know, what, what are some useful applications of uh, topological data analysis in machine learning? So topological data analysis is a branch of machine learning that looks at, um, it, it's a little bit like an MRI for data. So you're looking at these big features like holes um, or paths that exist at different different levels of the data. And putting those together kind of give you a global view of what's actually in your data, which is kind of cool. Um, there's been a lot of applications in medicine, um, particularly with the mapper algorithm, persistent homology, which is kind of the traditional MRI instead of the MRI with clustering. Um, has found a lot of uses in uh, image processing, um, signal processing, and those types of areas that tend to have complex interconnected data. Um, social network analysis is another one where topological data analysis is being applied, um, as well as um, some of these more geometry-based methods like Ricci curvature. It's really neat to see kind of how this field has gone from being an academic curiosity 10 years ago to really being applied across research and industry today. One of the applications that is near and dear to me um, is the connection of persistent homology with hierarchical clustering and some of the more traditional statistical methods like factor analysis. Um, so with factor analysis, usually when you're creating a survey, you'll uh, apply factor analysis to find these subscales and validate the data over different populations. And there are some really interesting mathematical connections that let you actually do this with persistent homology. And that was part of my graduate work. And it's been interesting to see how many different fields have started kind of using that methodology to solve some of these interconnected problems. Um, it's been used in ecology, economics, um, energy, also uh, psychometrics, which was the original field for it. It's just been so great to see how this has grown and how many people are actually using this methodology and these algorithms to solve real world problems. I see, I see. So, so uh, can you recommend any uh, maybe books or, or, you know, resources? Right now, yeah. um, most of the papers and books are at a very high academic level. I'm working on a book, um, the first half, which deals with topological data analysis, 
um, just finished up with the technical review, and I'm hoping for that to come out by the end of the year. But really, if you want to get into it right now, it's a lot of math. Mm -hmm. Um, If you can find a domain paper that kind of eliminates some of the proofs and some of the graduate level math from it, that can be useful. Um, Otherwise, right now, it, it does require quite a bit of mathematical expertise to get through some of the papers and books out there. You know, when do you think like topical data analysis is going to become very common, you know, in, uh, in daily application? Uh, how far it's away? Becoming, it's becoming a lot more common. Um, IASD out in California is a company that um, does a lot of topological data analysis, particularly with the mapper algorithm. And I think that's brought it to a wider range of folks. Um, so you can come with your data or your business problem and have them run it through their software rather than learn all of the math, deal with all of the programming. Um, but I think hopefully when the book comes out, I'm aiming kind of at an advanced high school, early college math major type um, audience, and I'm hoping that that will help get more of the practical applications out there um, without people needing to be as much of an expert in math. Yeah, I see, and, and we will talk a little bit about your book uh, later on in the conversation. Uh, but yeah, I I, uh, I think that that is awesome because you know um, someone who have the expertise in the field and and can translate some of the knowledge into a more digestible manner for. Or for younger people uh, to, to perhaps it was, was very critical just to, to further the education and adoption of any technology. And that's something that I think machine learning in general has benefited from. When somebody's able to kind of translate the algorithm to folks who are not experts in machine learning or math, it's really helped bring certain algorithms from kind of this academic setting or this particular people in industry are using it to, you know, everyone can kind of use these tools and kind of understand what's going on with the algorithms. I think that's really important in the field of machine learning that we're able to communicate some of these concepts and ideas to lay audiences. Certainly. Um, And so you will have an upcoming presentation at the a predictive analytics war in June that focus on epidemic modeling and engaging foreign ed organization that slash governments. Um, would you mind give, giving a glance at uh, this this talk? Well, I'm hoping that I will be giving this talk. I'm not sure with coronavirus if this is going to happen, but at the point that it does happen, I'm going to be talking about some of the work that I did Um, in the 2014 and 2018 Ebola outbreaks. Um, So I was a grad student um, finishing up my last semester in 2014 when the Ebola outbreak hit. And I had some friends doing business in Mali and just kind of connected with them on using my knowledge of epidemic models and differential equations to kind of run some what-if scenarios for them to kind of prepare their businesses for Ebola potentially spreading to Mali. And it kind of snowballed from there of um, starting to have the analyses get passed on and the discussions with the Malian health ministry. as a way to plan for epidemics. And one of the things that I've learned from um, both epidemics is just how important it is to take into consideration the cultural context and the socio-political situations in the countries. So in the 2014 outbreak, a lot of the spread was able to be stopped because of the infrastructure that did exist there. having foreign aid coming in and a little help with the infrastructure was able to go a long way. In this current outbreak, um, the region that's impacted has a lot less stability and infrastructure than in the 2014 outbreak. And 
that's something that can really complicate um, actually implementing the best solutions. And I think we're seeing this with coronavirus too. You have something that's rapidly becoming a problem that's threatening international communities rather than just an isolated little area. And engaging all of the key players and taking into consideration the context of different areas. You know, is this actually feasible to implement? If it's not feasible to implement, how do we work around that? Um, getting the buy-in is really, really important. Yeah, definitely. And and maybe just to dig a little bit deeper on that. So, uh, Epic, you know, let's say for people who are maybe not uh, have a thorough understanding of um, epidemic modeling, you know, maybe can can you tell what what is like the biggest challenge of like you know building a model to to measure and, and predict the outcomes of an epidemic, like, well, the technical challenge, I suppose. So um, there's a class of models, the SIR models, susceptible, infected, recovered. Um, that's a framework of differential equations that looks at the population dynamics of susceptible and infected patients. And it's pretty well known. There are a lot of different variations of this. So there's an SIRS model, an SI model, an SIS model, um, compartmentalized models, uh, network-based SIR applications. It's really figuring out how deep you want to go and then implementing what you want. There are a few things you need to know about the infectiousness. Um, so how many people get infected from one case, um, the recovery time. A lot of these different dynamics come into play in these differential equations. Um, one of the cool things about differential equations especially once you get into stochastic differential equations, which has random error in the model, and some of these partial differential equations where you have lots and lots of things that are changing simultaneously, is that you can use topology to understand the dynamics of the system. And that's something that I've begun exploring, um, just kind of looking at, you know, here's a system we have some data or we have some simulated data, you know, what, what are the global patterns in this? What are we, what's the overall pattern look like? And you can see a whole lot um, when you take that perspective on things. I've seen a bit of this done in the stock market as well. Um, the applications of persistent homology and some of these other topologically based algorithms to detect some of these change points. So epidemics, usually it's a, one person or a couple of people initially getting sick and then those people spreading the disease, usually unknowingly. And then those people that get infected are out in the community and interacting with people so you have a lot of these moving parts and there are points at which the epidemic goes from being kind of contained and this kind of passing along passing along to this exponential spread where things are a lot harder to contain if you can find those critical points of when things are starting to get out of hand you can intervene you can take drastic measures to isolate or vaccinate and be able to stop things from going global or impacting large regions within the epidemic. And we're seeing some of that with coronavirus right now. Um, there's a lot of exponential growth going on in a lot of different countries and kind of looking at things topologically can help plan for what might be coming next. Yeah, that, that's fascinating to hear. I've been reading a lot of data analysis and, and, and technical um, Articles recently about sort of, uh, coronavirus and sort of the exponential growth, like like you said, um, and this idea of like try they try this like a logistic curve, and at, at some point, right, it, it's gonna flatten. And the idea is how we can, oh, government and leaders overall, um, you know, can can impose measure in order to flatten the curve. And it seems like you know fighting this critical part that you mentioned, will allow us to to intervene and actually uh, impose that, right? 
Um, yeah. And, and yeah, and, and you also talk a little bit just just so about the that 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 part about engaging foreign aid organization and government. So, what, what was like the challenge of actually, you know, engaging them using an analysis? You know, um, I, I'm just curious. You know, besides the technical realm, uh, what other challenges that may come into to to actually allow us to to intervene? Buy-in and cooperation are key. Um, so the people who have the power to implement strategies to contain the outbreaks is really, really important that those people kind of understand what's going on and the need to act. And it's really important that all of the pieces needed to implement something are bought in and even just there, um, what we've seen in the Congolese Ebola outbreak is a region that's kind of unstable and plagued with violence. And that really complicates aid workers being able to go in, help patients and not be in the line of fire. Um, the attacks that have been going on for about a year now on aid workers really complicate things. If aid workers aren't safe, the aid organization pulls out. If there's a political conflict going on in an area with an outbreak, it's really difficult for somebody to come in and be able to set up everything that's needed with infrastructure and medical care. We'll see what happens with coronavirus if people are able to work together and find global solutions rather than everyone just kind of doing their own thing with whatever resources they have. Um, the buy-in and the getting the right people together and agreeing on things can be very difficult. Just just out of curiosity, since, you know, this is like, obviously like the, the big issue, uh, when do you think, you know, the, 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 the spread of corona can, can, can level up? You know, I'm just curious, based on your experience with Ebola, What's going on at the moment? When do you think? They're very different beasts. Um, yeah. So Ebola is really, really hard to spread. Um, basically, the patient has to be really, really sick, and you have to come in contact with bodily fluids. And that means that the epidemics are a lot slower. It's a lot harder to pass it on, and you need more people and more time for it to start showing exponential growth. With the flu, with coronavirus, with a lot of these more infectious diseases that are spread in different ways. Um, so droplets in the air, um, anything like that is going to usually, especially with something more infectious, infect more people. and. You can end up with these big spikes that can overwhelm healthcare systems. Um, once you see exponential growth, it's very easy to get to that point unless you're able to kind of smooth things out. Um, so vaccination is a really great way to prevent disease. Um, isolation of cases, monitoring of cases, um, all of those things can help slow the spread. If you're able to kind of flatten the curve and you don't have these huge spiking behaviors, a lot of healthcare systems are able to kind of weather the storm because there's not this huge influx of patients. It's kind of a steady, okay, a couple more beds open up, a couple more patients come in, and you don't have, you know, a few thousand people in a waiting room who need care urgently. Um, that's one of the main challenges with epidemics and one of the reasons that some diseases have really, really high death rates. Um, in the case of Ebola, a lot of these outbreaks have happened in areas that don't have great medical infrastructure. There's not a whole bunch of life support units that can be used for patients who are coming in. There's not a lot of blood transfusions that can be done or plasma that can be given. And so we see really high death rates. In, you know, Congolese Ebola outbreaks, um, rural areas that don't have this infrastructure, but we can just as easily get there 
in the developed world um, where we have lots of medical resources if we get to a point with an epidemic where there are more people who need the resources than we have resources normally that doesn't happen in the developed world because we have a lot of resources and the typical diseases that we see tend not to overwhelm resources one of the concerning things with coronavirus is just how many people require significant medical treatment. The numbers that I'm seeing are somewhere between 5 and 10%. And if we have millions of people who are in need, um, that quickly overwhelms cities, overwhelms county hospitals, um, things can get bad. So being able to flatten things out is definitely key. I see. The, the logistic operation part of it, right, um, was, was, was even more yeah. important than that, sure, treatment itself. Um, so, like, back, back to, you know, uh, kind of job apply about dealing with this uh, systematically, um, you know, in a complex system, you know, one, one thing connected to another and led to, you know, even possibility of breaking down the healthcare infrastructure, which is um, certainly can, can be a, a disaster. And, and so, you know, following guidelines from the government and, and the health system uh, would allow us to, to, to stop that from happening. Yeah, I mean, these are complex systems and um, they show some of this chaotic behavior, but understanding kind of where to poke them and how to poke them um, can do a whole lot, um, both with epidemics, um, with behavior in society, any of these complex systems, knowing where to poke is a good thing. Okay, so so let's move on with that and let's discuss more on um, uh, upskilling for, for data scientists. So, you know, as someone who have experience in a variety of, um, you know, domains and, and a variety of, you know, uh, technical topics, what are the different resources to, you know, learn new uh, algorithms, new programming language that you could recommend? So I personally like Google Scholar and Archive a lot um, for uh, published research. It's a good way to learn new algorithms and new domain knowledge or how algorithms are being applied in a domain. Also, if your company has things like LinkedIn Learning or Coursera accounts, those can be really valuable resources to be able to learn new programming languages or other skills that you need. And I would definitely encourage anyone out there to take advantage of any of the upskilling programs that you have if you're an employer. Really great perk out there. And I think more companies are realizing the value of that. You know, what are like some of the, the best courses that you took online uh, just from, from the experience? So I've been taking a couple courses in C-sharp and C++, um, as well as I've done some in Python, I've done some in different areas of business, and they're definitely valuable. You can learn a lot within a short class. You know, eight hours of your time kind of introduces you to the basics of something to the point where you can start self-teaching. I think it's really important to learn the fundamentals of something new. Um, having that foundation lets you kind of go out and gather knowledge on your own. When I started out with machine learning, I also realized a lot on like, you know, things like Coursera, Udemy, uh, Udacity, uh, to, to, to start out learning fundamentals. Um, and they, those uh, certainly still um, stood out for test, test of time, you know, because uh, more and more people kind of sharing, contributing more, uh, more, 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 their, their own resources that, um, you know, allow allow even more people to, to, to join the, the community. So that was certainly very helpful when in a few moving as fast as, you know, data science slash machine learning, then um, the desire to to continuously, you know, learn and, and, and grasp new material uh, was, was critical, right? Um, yeah. And, um, okay, so, so besides that, you have written more than, I suppose, you know, uh, 12,000 advances on Quora which is a social media platform um, to share knowledge with the world, as I suppose. So when did you first start uh, with Quora and how did writing on, on, on Quora benefit you professionally? I started about two and a half years ago and it's been really neat to connect with a lot of different people and people in different fields. 
Um, there are a lot of researchers and folks in industry who are using Quora, both to share knowledge and to learn new things. And um, I've noticed with consulting and even with being able to start Quantopo, um, my business partner and I met through a mutual friend that I met on Quora. Um, and it, it's neat to be able to make those connections and have interesting conversations and try out really interesting projects. Yeah, you, you know, I try to answer like maybe like a certain set of questions per week, but I, how do you like, you know, consistently, you know, uh, give out your answers? Um, I'm scared. I'm, I'm a, uh, I, I just kind of look at areas <laughs> that I'm interested in. It's really cool now that there is the internet and sites like Quora and Archive and um, just resources to learn and to explore new areas and share your knowledge. It's, it's really interesting. <laughs> I really wish that had been around when I was a kid. Um, just all of that knowledge that you can access now. It's just amazing. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I received your, your answers, you know, via the Quora Digest on I don't know, I guess probably a daily or weekly basis. So, so the old um, uh, was very tough to answer. And, and kind of related to that, you know, given your expertise in, in, in writing about, you know, machine learning slash data science, what are the traits of an excellent, you know, technical communicator uh, slash data translator? I think it's really important to find analogies for things that most people have experience with and being able to relate the material something else. Um, for instance, I like using the basketball and baseball analogy when I'm trying to explain um, parts of topology and this whole notion of whole counting in homology. Um, so you have the basketball that's, you know, it's three-dimensional. It has air inside it. It's not solid versus the baseball, which is solid. Um, they're different sizes, but when we look at the holes that exist in there, you have a void in the basketball, you have um, no voids or holes that exist in your baseball, hopefully. Um, and, you know, being able to kind of relate it to everyday objects or be able to come up with visuals that explain the material, I think, is helpful, especially when communicating across disciplines to folks who may not have the mathematical expertise to understand kind of what's going on with the algorithm. I see. So we'll always try to find an analogy and, and doing a comparison. What would a kindergartner have experience with? What would my grandma have experience with? We talked a little bit earlier that you... Uh, you know, in, are you maybe in the process of writing a technical book that essentially focused on the different use cases of topology, uh, geometry, and, and graph theory in, in machine learning? Um, so uh, maybe can you share in more details uh, what the book is about and uh, maybe just, just, you know, discuss the process of actually writing it? Sure. Um, it's been a lot of fun and I've learned a lot about what it takes to publish a book. Um, so the book isn't as much of a technical book as a lay audience book. Um, I'm trying to bring some of these topology, geometry, and graph theory-based algorithms to a wider audience that um, doesn't have the same sort of math background that I do and that people who are typically using these algorithms do. Um, there's a lot of pictures and analogies that are involved, as well as our code to actually implement the algorithms that are discussed in the book and some of the, the other pieces of math that are discussed. I think kind of the hands-on visual way makes it more accessible to folks. To do my first draft took about seven and a half months. Um, so it was a lot of writing, and I've been going through the technical review process um, with the publisher and the technical reviewer for the last several months. And it's been really cool to see how the book is evolving and improving with feedback. And I think having a great publisher 
can really help take a good idea for a book to creating a good book. And I'm really grateful to my publisher and my technical editor for helping get this thing actually created and hopefully out there relatively soon. We're going to be starting the second half of the technical editing soon. So um, I'm really excited to see what happens with the last half of the book this time around. And just just curious, how do you uh, how you how do you you know break down uh, the book into a different section? Um, you know, so you said it's the first half and the second half, but uh, you know, how many chapters are like? What are the different sort of uh, section that you you uh, you try to include? So basically, the way that I have the book structured is an introduction to some of the concepts in graduate level topology and geometry more for lay audiences um there's not equations in the book there's not proofs in the book it's just a lot of pictures and ideas to kind of get readers up to speed on some of the tools that are used to create these algorithms and from there i have a section on topological data analysis uh, um, in the second half there will be some sections on geometry in machine learning, so metric geometry and geometry-based algorithms. And then the last part of the book is going to cover network science and um, some of the algorithms to analyze social networks or gene networks or communication networks. And in there, there will be some stuff that touches on quantum computing and quantum graph algorithms, as well as some of the more cutting edge applications of geometry in both network science and in uh, machine learning in general. So it's gonna cover a lot and there's gonna be a lot of code for people to play around on the data sets that I'm gonna include in the book. Mm, I see, and and the the, the um, data set well, was that um, you know coming from like the public? Yeah. Um, so I'm trying to use open source data as much as possible and packages that exist in R already, as well as some data that I collected that's publicly available online. Um, so. There are some really good sources. Quora is one of them. As long as you abide by their guidelines, they're okay with you scraping data from questions. Mm -hmm. um, so being able to leverage some of these open source data sets is really important. Um, it lets people be able to kind of practice without having to pay for data or having to be employed somewhere to have access to data. It's really important that each domain has some data out there or a way for people to kind of harvest that data themselves. Um, and so who, who would be your ideal audience? And you know, what are the, the things that you really want them to take away from reading your book? So my audience is uh, data scientists who are interested in some of these newer algorithms, engineers, um, scientists in other fields, undergraduate students, um, really anyone who's had some calculus and linear algebra and is interested in you know, topological data analysis or doing some network science or looking at social media. It's, it's a book for anyone who has some of the basic skills in data science who wants to dig a little deeper and explore these algorithms and explore the code that implements these algorithms. I think there's a lot of good that these algorithms can do out in the world and a lot of problems that they could potentially solve. It's just a lot of the papers that are published are pretty academic and in math. And that kind of limits who's able to get through the paper and really understand how the algorithm or the package works. Yeah, so yeah, definitely I'm very excited to, you know, uh... To, to to you know maybe you got a chance to read your book when you finish. There's a lot of these topics like uh, you know topology, network science, geometry, machine learning. <laughs> I mean they, they haven't really been you know covered at all uh, you know uh, from from the commercial products out there. So I think you know uh, myself for me personally um I would definitely be very interested to kind of read through your book and and learn more 
on, on some of these newer, more uh, cutting-edge stuff, you know, like a quantum machine learning, for example. Um, yeah, so so definitely uh, put put that in the show notes so people can get a chance to maybe check out with you uh, later on. Awesome. Yeah, uh, um, I'll be announcing on my social media sites and setting up um, some book events when it does reach publication. Uh, it's a it's a long process to create a book, but it's definitely worth it. Having been involved in building the knowledge and capabilities of the tech communities in Miami, can you talk about the growth of the uh, data science community down there? It has grown so much so fast down here. Um, when I came back in, I think it was early 2016, there were very few data science positions down here. When I had graduated, I could not find anything in the field in South Florida. They're just, people weren't doing data science. People weren't doing machine learning down here. And as some of these tech conferences started coming down here, something really sparked in Miami. And we're now one of the largest growing tech hubs out there. We actually have had some recent awards for the number of startups in tech that have started down here. And it's really cool to see people moving down here and people in the area getting interested in machine learning and tech. University of Miami, FIU, St. Thomas, a lot of the universities down here are starting programs focused on data science or data analytics within existing programs as new programs. And it's just, it's really cool to see how industry and academia have kind of combined within just a few short years to really create a tech pipeline down here um, of local talent going into these startups and businesses that are starting to see the value in data science and machine learning. It's really cool to see how much things have grown down here. And I can't wait to see kind of where things go. Um, We've had a couple of the big Silicon Valley companies starting offices down here, um, as well as a lot of uh, medical companies that had been down here that are now starting to add data science and machine learning into what they do. And it's just, it's really cool to see how fast everything is evolving. Um, it's great that we're getting more conferences and being able to highlight the work that's being done down here. There's a lot of high quality data science. So yeah, so it's like a combination of um, tech companies and more domain specific companies, like for example, like healthcare or manufacturing logistics. Thinking, it's, it's encouraging to see just how much tech and machine learning have become mainstream down here. You've got a, you've got a chance to like uh, maybe go to local meetups event or, or speak at, at, at conferences um, down Miami? Yeah, um, I've spoken at Data Science Salon and Women in Data Science Miami. Um, I've spoken at Pi Data. A little bummed that that's been delayed, uh, mm. but you know, with coronavirus, it's probably good that it was delayed. Um, We'll see if I'm one of the people selected for that whenever it gets rescheduled. I would definitely encourage people to go to at least some local conferences because you'll meet a lot of people and kind of find out what's going on in your local area. Yeah, definitely. Um, both networking uh, online by platform like Nicora Plus, you know, actually meeting people in person is, is a great way to sort of build your brand and, and tapping up your business network and, and tapping up to people who in the same interest with you. So uh, that's something I've been also trying to, to do a lot. And yeah, it's definitely valuable. Yeah, so you have also recently been um, involved in data science within the African sector, which have seen an explosion of startups and economic growth lately. Um, yeah, so can you talk uh, a little bit about uh, such involvement? So I... It's something that I, I kind of stumbled across. Um, my business partner at Quantopo is originally from Nigeria. And I got kind of curious. I've met people on Quora and LinkedIn 
within the African data science community and seen some talks online of just kind of the growth that's going on there. And it seems to be a lot of similarities with what's been going on in Miami, where the educational sector and industry are kind of creating the synergy to really kickstart the tech economies and train people for jobs in tech. And it's really encouraging to see so many countries that are embracing this new technology and finding some of these solutions. Um, I've gotten asked on Quora a lot about how someone in the developing world who might not have a local university can kind of break into this field. And it's great that there are so many online courses like Coursera now that provide certificates and training um, for folks who really want to kind of get into this but don't have the four years to spend at college or don't have a local college that they can easily go to. And it's just really cool to see open source technology, universities, and industry kind of coming together and creating these new tech hubs. Yeah, what are some of the tech hubs in, in Africa? So um, you have some of the more traditional ones, Egypt and South Africa. Um, Ghana and Nigeria are becoming pretty big players. Um, there's even tech being used in Rwanda and some of these more emerging economies, um, especially within agriculture and energy. Um, so being able to make the most of resources that do exist. And it, it's just really cool to see how tech is being used to better lives and better countries. It, it's just, it's really cool to see kind of industry, social good, and data science all kind of come together. That sounds very encouraging. Yeah, there's some really great things going on these days in the developing world, and it's really great how technology is playing a role. Yeah, would you mind uh, maybe sharing like a couple of resources? Coursera and LinkedIn Learning are really good resources. They're both relatively affordable um, and give a lot of really good access to the foundational material. Khan Academy is another really good one that focuses more on the math and kind of cobbling together some of those open source courses, some of those free courses and some of those paid courses. You can put together a pretty good tech background um, and be able to apply a lot of data science and machine learning to actually solve problems that you're facing in your community. And then lastly, you know, um, how, how do you think that um, data science will look like in the next three to five years? Well, I'm seeing a lot more cloud computing, um, both on job boards and tech forums. Um, so I think cloud computing is going to become more and more important. Um, not needing lots and lots of hardware where you are um, is a really good thing for companies because real estate costs money and maintaining those systems costs money. Um, so being able to access big data platforms, I think, is going to be a big thing. Um, I'm seeing Python kind of become more of the language of choice for data scientists. Um, R is still out there for certain things and certain industries are still using a lot of SAS, but I've seen Python and even C++ kind of become more common in machine learning applications. In addition, depending on you know hardware breakthroughs, I could see quantum computing starting to become more of an industry thing and less of a purely academic thing in the next five years. Um, the pace at which hardware has grown in the last, you know, even 18 months since starting Quantopo, um, there's a lot more computing power. And once it gets to the point where, you know, it's affordable on a cloud platform or it's um, affordable to actually have a quantum computer for um, larger companies, I could see that becoming more of a thing. I'm hopeful with the advances in topological data 
analysis and um, some of these more specialized algorithms kind of getting out there in the general public and more people being aware that they exist, I think that's going to play a larger part in industry and academic research in the coming years. It's a really exciting time. There's a lot of new hardware being developed, a lot of new algorithms being developed, a lot of languages that are maturing, and it's it's really cool to see all of that kind of coming together. And I think we'll continue to see that in the next few years. Right, so it's a combination of um, more computing power, more algorithms, and more, more, more adoption of, of these uh, technologies into both uh, the enterprise and uh, as well as, as, as academia, probably going to lead to an explosion of, of uh, opportunities to, to, to bring that into our daily life. So, um, yeah, it seems like this is a very optimistic view of the field, um, especially for, for people who, who want to get into it now, right? Yeah. I mean, now's the time and the way that tech has gone in the last 20 years. It's a really good time to be interested in tech and working in tech, just a never-ending body of knowledge and a lot of really cool developments to kind of get in on the ground floor. Well, thank you so much, Colin. Um, uh, at, at this part of the podcast, I'm, uh, I want to move on into the closing segment in which I'm going to ask you like just three rapid-fire questions, and then you can uh, give the tactical resources for people who, uh, who are curious about them. Um, does that sound good? Sure. Yeah, so the first question is... Uh, Name three people in the machine learning and AI universe whose work you really admire. Um, I really love John Holland's papers on genetic algorithms, and I would highly recommend his papers to anyone who kind of wants to get into genetic algorithms. And I got to say, Leo Breiman was um, a hero of mine. Um, I really fell in love with machine learning from his papers on random forest. And Andrew Ang is another um, influence, I guess. Um, I really love his mix of academia and um, bringing these algorithms to the world. I think it's really important not only to do the research, but to be able to communicate it and share it with wide audiences. That's how things really get started and algorithms really start taking hold in industry. The second question is that uh, name one book that you would recommend for people who want to develop a better analytical mindset. I mean, there are a lot of great papers and blogs out there. Off the top of my head, I would have to say, at least with the math, um, the Dover series, different branches of math are pretty comprehensive. That's what I use to kind of teach myself the math. And I would definitely recommend that. Um, A lot of the material being written today seems to be more blog and paper oriented though, um, which is kind of a shame. I wish there were more kind of introductory books out there on analytics. I think that would help a lot. Mm, I see. Yeah, having that fundamentals of mathematics, I think, uh, seems to be lacking um, from the educational programs. Um, yeah, right. It's academic or nothing, really. Um, well, great. I, I I be sure to include you know those double um, series that you just mentioned on math, so people can have a chance to take a look. And then the last question is that imagine that you can write a short paragraph to all the aspiring data scientists on Quora, what could you write about? I would probably write about all of the different paths that can lead to data science. Um, There are so many people who want to switch fields from business or from neuroscience or physics and get involved in machine learning. And it's definitely possible. Um, You know, whatever degree you pursued, or whatever courses you're taking online, if you're in the developing world, all of that can bring you the knowledge to be able to use your unique experiences and expertise with machine learning to solve real world problems. And it's definitely possible. It takes a lot of work to get 
to be an expert in machine learning and data science, but it's definitely possible if you stick with it. Yeah, that, that's also what I really love about, you know, the fact that multiple people come in, have a different background because they, they each have their own uh, perspective um, and, and, and different skill sets. So it's cooking. And we need that. Yeah. We really need that in industry. When you have so many people who share a very similar background, you don't get the diversity of opinions and the diversity of perspectives on a problem. Mm -hmm. And that's really valuable when you're developing products or thinking about solving problems. Right, and that also tie back to one of the earlier points we talked about about um, domain knowledge, right? Because unless you, you know, you have someone who, you know, familiar with with healthcare, you know, it's hard to develop a, a, a medical products, or you, you know, someone who familiar with, you know, like I said, nuclear engineering, it's hard to develop. Uh, models to, to, to optimize nuclear reactors so having uh, that, that that diverse skill set uh, from from people with different backgrounds is actually critical to to, to make your solution um, feasible uh, to, towards the, 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 the consumer definitely um, well yeah so Colleen um, I really appreciate you uh, in spending time with me this morning I really enjoy uh, learning about uh, your your path to the designs um, you know your consulting work with, you know, uh, statisticism and, and quantopo, your explanation of like topical data analysis, you know, your, your book, different resources on, you know, online learning, Quora, as well as your involvement with the community in, in both Miami and, and, and Africa. So um, uh, I'll be sure to include most of the resources that we talk about today on the show notes so people can um, have a chance to take a look and, and review them. And uh, yeah, well, uh, I enjoy a lot and uh, that's great chatting with you today. Well, that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website, jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.